0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you. Um, would you grab your white notice sheet and get your Bible ready? You may be thinking, hang on, we haven't had the reading yet, and uh, we'll, we'll come to that. Uh, let me pray as we uh, study the word together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again that we can gather together as your people around your word, the Bible. And we thank you that when we do so, you promise to speak to us through these words by your powerful Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Father, today that your Spirit would show us your Son, Jesus, so that we might glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, When it comes to teaching the Bible, whether that's in a sermon or a Bible study or one-to-one, one of the key considerations is about application. That is, it's really important to think if this is true, then what does it mean for me? What does it mean for us? How will my life change as a result? And often it's helpful to boil that down to a single concrete action. Here is one thing to put into practice, one change you can make, one result of hearing this. That's very important. That's one of the reasons we spend a lot of our time in growth groups reflecting on the sermon we heard on the previous Sunday, It's so we can get real and personal and practical with application. We don't want to do what the book of James warns us about, looking into the mirror of God's word, walking away and immediately forgetting what we look like. We expect the word of God to change us in real, measurable, practical ways We know that the Spirit of God is at work through his word to transform us, to help us put sin to death, to teach us to love God and to love our neighbor, to cause us to live out and speak the gospel to others. And so we expect change. And it's often helpful to spell out some idea of what that change would look like in our lives, to get really practical about patterns of thinking we need to avoid, or habits we need to correct, or action points to work on. And I'll mention all that because I'm going to warn you, I will not be doing any of that this sermon at all. Today, I have one simple goal, which I believe is the goal of this passage in Matthew's Gospel. Today, the goal is simply to put Jesus Christ in front of our eyes, to see him as the Bible presents him, to see him as God sees him. And I'm not going to call you to one small change or one single action point, I'm going to call you to change the direction of your entire life. And to convince you to do that, to prepare us for our reading, I'm going to tell you a story. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Once upon a time, God spoke to a man called Abraham. Abraham was a normal man, a pagan idol worshipper like everyone else around him in the land of Mesopotamia. God called him to leave that land, to come out from it, and to leave those gods, to come out of that way of life and to make a journey to a new land, a new home which God had promised to give him and his family. The people grew and started to settle in that land, but through various twists and turns, they ended up exiled from their new home and living instead in the land of Egypt. Early on in there, Abraham's grandson, a man whose name was Israel, prophesied that one day God would bring them back to their homeland. On the screen, Genesis 48, 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. At the same time, Israel prophesied that one day a king would emerge from the family of one of his sons and would rule the people. Indeed, he would rule all the nations in a land of abundance and security and peace again on the screen from genesis 49 the scepter will not depart from judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his he will tether his donkey to a vine his colt to the choicest branch he will wash his garments in wine his robes in the blood of grapes his eyes will be darker than wine his teeth whiter than milk But as it turned out, that day actually lay far in the future. Generations came and generations went, and the people ended up enslaved in Egypt, trapped in exile, until one day Israel's prophecy came true, and God led the people out of Egypt, across the Red Sea and across the Jordan, through the city of Jericho and into the promised land of Canaan. Their exile in Egypt was ended by an exodus, by a coming out. They settled, they grew, and eventually the other part of Israel's prophecy came true. God gave them a king from the line of Judah, a man named David. David brought security and prosperity to the nation, and he built a city called Jerusalem to be the new capital. But strangely, his own life was not easy. In fact, it seemed to mirror something of that earlier story of Israel, More than once he was exiled from his own land and from his own city. In 2 Samuel 15 to 20, we read that his own son Absalom rebelled against him and he was sent barefoot and weeping back over the river Jordan to the Mount of Olives, although a friend of his did bring him a couple of donkeys to ride on for a bit. God in time defeated that rebellion and brought David back in triumph over the Jordan again. His exile was ended by an exodus, and he brought his band of faithful disciples back to Jerusalem to sit on his throne once more. And did I mention he did all that on a donkey? Over time, the people learned to remember this story, the story of exile ended by exodus. They celebrated the Passover to remember how God sent his judgment on the idolatry of Egypt and yet rescued his own people through the death of a sacrificial lamb, and so around Passover time they would process up to the temple in Jerusalem, retracing the steps of that Exodus back home, and they would sing songs as they did it. They would sing, in fact, Psalms 113 to 118, which became known as the Egyptian Hallel, the Egyptian Praise. In fact, would you turn with me to Psalm 118? It's on page 616 of your red Bibles. And let's hear one of the songs they sang as they celebrated that their exile had been ended by an exodus, Psalm 118. <clears throat> when you get there, just uh, skim your eyes down the first few verses. They are words of praise and thanksgiving to the God whose love endures forever. Do you see they keep saying that? His love endures forever. His love endures forever. How do we know? Because verse 5, this is the God who sets his people free in verse 7 he is the god who leads them in triumph over their enemies and so now verse 19 they can enter the gates of righteousness the city of their king in verse 22 that king is like a stone that was rejected by people and yet it is the capstone the cornerstone of their new secure homeland and so they sing, verse twenty-five: 25, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us with bows in hand, joining the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. That word, save us in verse 25, in Hebrew is Hosanna, hosanna. It is a cry for the end of exile. It is a plea for a new exodus. O come and save us please, Hoshiana. And in their joy, the people of Israel could celebrate that the exile was ended, that their exodus had happened, that they were safe and secure in the city of their king. But that joy wouldn't last. The people, instead of continuing to worship the God who had saved them, turned to idols themselves. They became just like the nations around them, just like the nation Abraham had left, just like the nation that had once enslaved them. And so the people were sent into exile again, once again in a foreign country in the north, in Babylon, far from home, under God's judgment. But God hadn't finished with them yet. Once again, he sent prophets like Israel back in Egypt to teach the people that God's grace hadn't run out That despite their sin and rebellion, he would one day bring them back home. Isaiah told of a day when the mountains would be laid low to make a single flat highway for God to lead his people back to the promised land. That Jerusalem, which would be destroyed by foreign armies, would one day be rebuilt and that the king would once again welcome all nations to his kingdom. I'd encourage you to read the whole of Isaiah 62 to enjoy that, but here is one part of it on the screen. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your saviour comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after. The city no longer deserted. And that day came. The people's exile ended in Exodus. They came out from Babylon and returned to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They appointed a priest, a man named Joshua, a name which means the Lord saves. But somehow things didn't quite seem right the temple was small and unimpressive the work was slow and the city was vulnerable they didn't have a king yet only a governor by the name of Zerubbabel and yet into this mini exile this mini mini exodus a prophet called zechariah spoke of a bigger of bigger and better things to come he gave the people a vision of joshua the high priest clothed in spotless white garments able to serve in the temple forever. He told Joshua that he was going to send a servant, someone called the branch, who would be able to remove the sins of the whole nation in one single day. You can read that in Zechariah chapter 3. He gave them a vision of Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple with a cornerstone as the people shouted songs of praise and blessing in Zechariah 4. Strangely, he also gave them a vision of Joshua, the priest, being crowned like a king, in Zechariah 6. And we'll pick up the story in Zechariah 8. Will you turn there with me? Uh, page number 954, that says. 954 in your Bibles. <coughs> From Zechariah 8, let me pick out. A few verses for you. Look at verse 3. This is what the Lord says, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Look at verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people. And I will be faithful and righteous to them as their gods. Look at verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. God spoke of a time when the exile of his people and the exile of every nation would be ended by an exodus. You see, the exile in Babylon was physically over, but the people were still waiting for the return of God, their king, for when the relationship between them would be fully and finally healed, for when the cornerstone of the true temple would be laid, for when the nations would come to enjoy the salvation of the king. When would that happen? Well, Zechariah also gave them something to look out for, a sign for when that day would come. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Exile will be ended by Exodus. The The king will come back to his city, riding a donkey, leading people from every nation home and granting them peace. Sally is going to come and give us our reading. If you turn to page 988. In your Bibles, we're going to read from Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11.
1: Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee.
0: Thanks, I. Usually we do have the reading at the beginning of the sermon, but I hope you understand why today I did it that way round. Matthew is the great gospel of fulfillment. And this passage is absolutely chock full of references and allusions to that great story of the Old Testament that we just told. And it's very clear that this isn't Matthew reading all this into the story. As if Matthew is just sort of squinting a bit and saying, oh, do you know what? That reminds me a bit of Zechariah 9. No, Jesus is clearly orchestrating things to present himself as the fulfillment of all the prophecies we've just looked at. Remember his journey so far. He has set out from the north country, from Galilee of the Gentiles, the north which is the traditional place of exile. Assyria and Babylon are in the north. Jesus has set out from there, from the land of the Gentiles, to come south to Jerusalem, bringing a load of people with him. In chapter 19, verse 1, he crossed the Jordan River. And in chapter 20, verse 29, he passed through Jericho, like the Israelites did in the Exodus. In our passage, he sets out from the Mount of Olives and goes from there to Jerusalem riding on a donkey with a huge crowd of people following him like David did. It's not particularly subtle, is it? This is all very clear and very deliberate. Jesus is clearly orchestrating events, even down to arranging a donkey to ride on and sending his disciples to pick it up. In Matthew's Gospel so far, some people have got a glimpse of, of who he really is. And almost every time, Jesus has told them not to tell anyone. Have you noticed that? You can read back, look at these uh, references in your own time. 8 verse 4, say nothing to anyone. 9 verse 30, see that no one knows about it. 12 verse 16, don't tell anybody who I am. 16, 20, don't tell anybody who I am. 17 verse 9, tell no one the vision. Well, cat's out of the bag now, isn't it? Jesus openly proclaims his kingship. Here I am, he says. Here is the heir of Judah. Here is the son of David. Here is the Messiah, the Christ. Come and see. What does Jesus want us to see? What do we see as we gaze on Jesus in this passage? Well, having done the work already in the Old Testament, it should be quite straightforward. Let's look at him and see who he is, what he's doing, And how he does it who he is first who is this man on a donkey it's unmistakable isn't it he calls himself the lord in verse 3 the people who cried hosanna to god in psalm 118 are now calling hosanna to the son of david here and here he resolves a tension in the Old Testament prophecies we've looked at. We've seen that Zechariah, in Zechariah 9 that a human king is promised, a man who can ride on a donkey. But in Zechariah 9 verse 16, it says that the Lord himself, God, will rescue his people. In Zechariah 14 verse 9, it says that the Lord himself, God, will be king. In Zechariah 14, verse 16, it says that people from all nations will go up every year to Jerusalem to worship their king, who is the Lord Almighty. Well, which is it? Is the king a man, or is he God's? Jesus, riding into Jerusalem, says both. The carpenter's son from Nazareth is the Lord of heaven and earth. And of course, he had to be. He had to be both man and God. Remember, he's just told his disciples that salvation is impossible with man, but possible only with God. Only God can transform our stubborn, sinful hearts to humbly come and beg him for mercy. And only God can bring life out of death. We've seen Jesus perform some wonderful deeds in Matthew's Gospel, haven't we? We've just seen him give sight to the blind with a single word to reconnect an optic nerve to the retina, to restore crystal clarity to a lens fogged with glaucoma or cataract or whatever it was. Who else could speak and bring about this restoration except the God who once spoke to invent the human eye in the first place? As Jesus said to John the Baptist in Matthew 11, when John asked him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Who else could it be? But those miracles, wonderful though they are, only pointed to the true and greater miracle that Jesus came to achieve, to bring sinners like the rich young man and the 12 glory-obsessed disciples and two blind beggars and you, and me, into the kingdom of heaven. It would take nothing less than the recreative power of God to achieve that. We'll come back to that later. But notice too that those earlier passages were not content to describe the coming king just as Israel's Messiah, or as their local tribal deity. No, the creator God is the Lord of the whole earth. And the king in the line of David would rule over all nations. He would be a light indeed to all nations. This recreative power is too much to be confined to one country and one people. Jesus comes into Jerusalem to offer recreation to the whole world. But what is that power for? What is he doing? He's already said that, Jesus already said that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many and I suspect for many people in this room that is a very very precious truth to know that Jesus on the cross has taken the penalty for our sin has taken for on himself the wrath we deserve for our rebellion against God so that we can be restored to friendship with God and given hope for eternal life that is wonderfully liberating news and if you don't know that news for yourself today Excuse me, then please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love for you to know that good news for yourself. But if that is your understanding of what Jesus came to do, I hope you can see from what we've read in the Old Testament that a much bigger thing is happening than simply the offer of personal salvation. Jesus is bringing to fulfillment all the patterns and pictures of the Old Testament which are much richer and deeper and better than we might think. Think about what we've seen. We've seen time and time again that this world is trapped, enslaved to sin and idolatry, and therefore in exile, far from God, banished from him since the day Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. We are beset by enemies, demonic powers that tempt and rule and enslave us. And we also have an enemy within, a heart which is bent towards evil. We live in a world which is hard and unyielding and difficult and frustrating. We have rulers who are sinful and selfish and incompetent. And by the way, I would have said that at any point in human history, not just now. It's not just that we are sinners who need forgiveness. We are exiles who need to come home. We are slaves who need the redemption of a perfect sacrifice. We are unclean and need the intercession of a great high priest. We are ruled by foreign powers and need the rescue of a powerful king. Well, he's here. Here is the Lord coming out from heaven to seek and save his banished people. Here is the Lion of Judah. Here is the Lamb of God. Here is the great high priest, the new Joshua. Here is the conquering king, the new David. He has come to end our exile with an exodus to bring us home to God. But how is he going to do it? If you are very, very eagle-eyed, and I'm I'm rather impressed if you notice this, you'll see that when Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9, he misses a line. Did you spot that? Keep Matthew 21 uh, in front of you, Matthew 21 uh, verse 5, and let's put Zechariah 9 verse 9 back on the screen. Here's what Zechariah 9 says. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you see that? Zechariah says that the coming king will be righteous and having salvation, but Matthew doesn't mention that. Why not? What does that mean, that the king will be righteous and having salvation, and what does Matthew, why doesn't Matthew quote it? Slightly strange language, isn't it? Slightly weird. What does it mean to have salvation? Well, quite literally, that word means to be saved. Using exactly the same word, the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 33 are described as those who are saved by the Lord. And here the king is described as having been saved. And that righteous word has the sense of being vindicated. He is approved by God as one who has done the right thing. He is just and upright and good, and everyone acknowledges it. So the king in Zechariah 9 verse 9, returning to his city, is vindicated and saved. And that is precisely what we saw with King David, wasn't it? Absalom, his son, had spread malicious rumors about him soured his reputation among the people and cast him into exile. But when David's exile ended with Exodus, David rode back into Jerusalem vindicated as one whom God approved as someone who was in the right and saved, rescued from his enemies. The king had gone through an awful ordeal. He was rejected and his reputation has been trashed, but he's come through it. God has saved him. And now his exile has turned to Exodus. I wonder if you're beginning to see why Matthew didn't quote that line just yet. You see, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem is meant to show us that Jesus is both God and King. And that he will lead his people out of exile through Exodus, back home to God and to the promised land of the new creation. But he hasn't done it yet. In last week's passage, he prophesied that he would be handed over to the Gentiles, that he would be rejected and mocked and beaten and crucified, that his reputation would be trashed. In fact, that he would go into his own exile, like Israel, like David, that he would be cut off from his people. In fact, that he would be under the judgment of God himself. That he would bear in his own flesh and in his own soul the pain of banishment from God. That the judgment for idolatry would be poured out on him. And yet he also prophesied last week that he would rise again. That God would vindicate him as righteous and worthy to be the ruler of all the nations. That he would be saved from death and brought home but not this time to the earthly Jerusalem. No, this mini-exodus in Matthew 21 is a shadow and a rehearsal for the real thing. His exodus would take him to his father's side, to the kingdom of heaven, to the new Jerusalem. That is why he comes on a donkey and not on a war horse. The battle he will face, the war he will wage on our enemies of sin and death and hell will not be fought with a sword and with an army. It will be fought with nails and with a crown of thorns and with a wooden cross. You see, Matthew 21 is not the king's exodus. It is not the king's homecoming. That's going to come later. Actually, the entry into Jerusalem is the start of the king's exile. So how should we respond to Jesus as we see him in this passage? He has shown us who he is, but the question on everyone's lips in this passage is, who is this? I wonder what you make of the crowd's response to Jesus in this passage. At first glance, it seems to be absolutely wonderful, doesn't it? They crowd round Jesus, they they lay their cloaks on the road like they did for King Jehu in 2 Kings 9 verse 13. They shout the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna to the Son of David. You might have noticed there that the word Hosanna appears to have slightly lost its original meaning. We learned earlier that Hosanna, Hoshiana, means save us. But the crowd here seems to use it just as a general praise word. It sort of means hooray. That happens in English all the time. The English word goodbye, for example, comes from the phrase God be with you. But we don't really think about that anymore, do we? We just say goodbye. It's just a word. That's happened here over a thousand years or so with the word Hosanna. It used to mean save us. Now it just means very. Re- But leaving that aside for the moment, just now the crowd look like they're playing their part well, don't they? They're in Jesus' procession, like the returning exiles who are being brought back home in a new exodus. And they're singing praise to their king, and they're making such a ruckus about it that the whole city takes notice. Look with me at verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, literally, by the way, shaken like as in an earthquake, and asked, who is this? The crowd's answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What do you think? What do you think about the crowd's answer? It's right. It's true, isn't it? He is a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But I wonder, as Sally read it, whether you heard it as a massive anticlimax. Jesus could not be clearer. He is not just a prophet he is the promised priest king he is God himself come to rescue and to rule through his exile on the cross and his exodus to his father's right hand. and yet as we'll see next week and in the weeks to come it's not just this crowd that gets him wrong In verse 5, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 62 say to the daughter of Zion, say to Jerusalem, here is your king, here is the son of David, who is the son of man, who is the son of God. I wonder if you turn forward with me finally to Matthew 27 and see what Jerusalem says back. Matthew 27, page 999. (coughs) I'll start reading from verse 39. Jesus on the cross. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. It's painfully ironic, isn't it? As Jesus is dying on the cross, he is the warrior king fighting his people's greatest battle for them. He is giving himself up to exile from God so that he can save his people. He is demonstrating that he is the humble priest king of Zechariah 3, the branch who can remove the sin of all his people in one single day. He is defeating our enemies by freeing us from slavery to hostile powers. And he is about to pass through exile and death to his exodus, being raised to life, raised to his father's side, ascended to heaven and the new Jerusalem, leading ransomed captives in his wake. And the people, Jerusalem, do not see it. They side with the Gentiles, with the enemies of God, intensifying Jesus' exile by their rejection of him trashing his reputation and yet these are the very people whom jesus came to save people like you and me rebels and idolaters and exiles in desperate need of an exodus see on the cross your king comes to you vindicated and saved gentle and riding on a donkey and so here's the question for all of us as we conclude this morning. Do you see him? Do you, do you see your king? And will you cry out hosanna to him, not just as a generic praise word meaning hooray, but in its original meaning, hosanna, hoshanna, save us. Will you accept that you are in exile away from your gods and that you need to come home? Will you see that in the cross, Jesus has lowered every mountain, cleared every obstacle, and made a big, wide, flat motorway for you to return to God? Will you join him in his procession and follow him? And will you follow him on the path that he has walked? Will you follow him through suffering to glory, through exile to exodus? If you will, then you will find that you are brought home to God cleansed, redeemed, forgiven, rescued, vindicated and saved along with him and made fit to live in his promised new creation, the kingdom of heaven, the new Jerusalem, in abundance, security and peace forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to see Jesus. We want to see him as He really is. Thank you that you have shown us in the pages of your whole Bible, on every page we see the truth about who Jesus is, that he is God, that he is our king and the king of all nations, that he is the sacrifice we need to redeem us from slavery, that he is the warrior we need to destroy our enemies, that he is the lamb we need to be our sacrifice thank you that he has removed the sins of his people in one single day on the cross and we pray father that as we look at the cross we would see it clearly that we would see jesus for who he really is and we would cry to him hosanna save us in jesus name amen